Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, we want to go ahead and get started, so if you will, uh, I hate to say stop loving on each other because that's going to be quite antithetical to where we're about to go in 1 John, but uh, let's find our seats and we will jump in. My name is uh, Bo Andrews. For the visitors who are here, I'm not the usual teaching pastor, um, but I get the opportunity to come and to fill the pulpit. Um, This morning, I have the opportunity to cover 1 John in its entirety, and so uh, the reason we're doing it is that's the book that we're going to be studying in our upcoming youth retreat, and the title of the youth retreat, my shameless promotion, is Consider This, uh, a study of 1 John. And so um, this morning, we're going to try to go through 1 John at a rather high level, but I know that God will give our hearts things to consider as we do. That said, there's a whole lot in this book that I simply will not be able to address because of time constraints. I'll let you know that my first couple manuscripts that I wrote and read through were somewhere around two hours Uh, And that that felt like I was already leaving a lot out. So what I'd like to invite each of you to do at this point is take your hand and push down the cushion of your chair and just make sure that you're on a comfortable chair. And if you're not, then now is the time to find such a chair as we dive in uh, to 1 John. The book really deserves several weeks, maybe several months. There's just so much here. But instead, we're going to take a a high-level flyover, and I pray that God gives our hearts uh, something to consider as we do. That said, typically what Pastor Ken does is have us read the material, and then we'll take a few moments to bow our heads. Um, So we've got five chapters to read, and then I'm going to invite you for a moment of silence. Uh, No. Um, Instead, I'd ask you to bow your head with me as we ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, as we have your word open now in front of us, we ask that you would just calm our minds from the busyness of a Sunday morning, both from what we've already experienced in getting dressed and getting here, and those things that we still have left for us in this day that may distract our minds to think ahead, and instead, Lord, that you would call us into your word, into your revealed ideas about humanity, about the life we live, about the world we live in, and about the hope that we have that is only found in Christ Jesus. We've confessed, Lord, that This week, we've put our hope in other things. We've imagined that the things of life could fill our hearts, could give us meaning, and could satisfy us. And Lord, repetitively, we find that that's not possible, and life continues to come up empty. And so we ask that you would forgive us for putting our hope in other things. And now, Lord, that you would draw us back to our only hope, Christ Jesus, And that you would encourage us in our faith as we consider who he is. Speak to us, Lord, not just in our minds, but let that go into our very identities. So that we would continue to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And live out that likeness, both in the church body as the way we love each other. And as light in the world and the community around us. 
For the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So, John, the God, uh, John is um, probably the youngest of the disciples that Jesus called. When Jesus found him, he was working with his brother James for their dad uh, in a fishing business, probably alongside other disciples like Peter and Andrew. Uh, John, history says, uh, probably lived into his 80s, maybe early 90s. He pastored a church at Ephesus. He lived through the persecution of Nero and the persecution of Domitian. Um, Jerome says that on on his deathbed, John continued to repeat the words, little children love one another until he was told by someone that the believers do love one another, and he responded, it is enough, it is the Lord's command. Which I think shows us the the heart a little bit of this disciple, this follower of Christ, that we're about to read his letter, his great concern over the body of Christ and how they acted towards one another. The context of the letter or the churches at that time, was that they were probably entering into the persecution of the Roman Empire that came under Domitian. And uh, in that, they were starting to suffer the loss uh, of social positions, uh, persecution, being kicked out of the marketplace, maybe losing their homes. This persecution would grow to the place that they would risk losing their families, and many of them even losing their lives. Within the church, there was both of the Judaizers that we read throughout Paul's epistles that were a part of the church, but continued to spread false ideas about what it meant to be a Christian. Basically, those ideas came out of a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what he had done. In John's day, he's also addressing this letter because the church had what we would know as as the proto-Gnostics, those that started the Gnostic ideas in the church, that those believers or that philosophy simply believed that flesh in and of itself was bad, was evil, and was really unredeemable. Because that was their belief, Their ideas about Christian living said that it didn't matter what you did in your life. It didn't matter what you did with your body. It didn't matter how you acted because the flesh was unredeemable anyway. What they really taught was the ideas that it only mattered what you confessed. That you had special knowledge that would save your spirit upon death and you would go into a spiritual world And so John is writing this to a church that was suffering persecution from the community around them and was having to deal with false ideas about Jesus within the church. In that, I think that we could say we still uh, can relate. Lest we imagine that these kind of groups no longer exist in our church world, I would point out the very many recent denominational splits and fractions that have centered around the various beliefs that that exist within the church. 
It's still true that many churches this morning have people there with an ulterior motive other than worshiping God. They're there for their own agenda. Sadly, it's also still true that being in the church this morning, being in a church building, no more makes you a Christian than if you were standing in your garage this morning would make you a car. It's possible to be here, but not be a follower of Christ. And that's why John is writing this letter. John starts the letter with, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, or 1 through 4, assuring the believers, in essence saying, maybe as believers you didn't get to see Jesus in the flesh walk around. And you didn't get to hear him speak. And you didn't get to see the impact of the God-man as he went around and shared the gospel of the kingdom and how it affected the lives around him. So John is saying, but I promise you I was there. And the message that I'm giving you is from somebody who touched Christ, who heard his words, who saw the efficacy of his ministry and John is writing this to the believers to say look Jesus is the real deal in the same way that John the same apostle wrote the gospel that bears his name and the theme of that gospel is that Jesus is the God man he is the son of God come to be with us and so he's reiterating that to these believers because remember they're suffering persecution they're suffering the loss of of things because of those that hate Christ outside of the church and they're having to endure misunderstandings and wrong teaching from within the church and so John is saying look the message that I'm about to speak to you is from somebody who was there with Christ and as that person I promise you your faith in him is worth risking losing the things of this life and your faith in him is worth fighting for the purity of who Jesus Christ is. That said, then I would like to use as a way to get through these five chapters the idea that John is contrasting real believers in the church. I'm going to call that, John calls that the we's and the us's with four other type of people that are found in church bodies. We're going to use that as a, an outline to go through. The first type of church uh, the, of people who are here that aren't the us's will be the all talk but no action. Then we're going to address the defectors who leave the church because the love of the world and the world's things still has such a grip on their hearts. We'll go through the imposters or imitators who are in church but really they refuse to submit to God's laws and social uh, and, and moral um, uh, standards. And instead they leave room in their heart to make up those laws and standards that guide their lives. And lastly, we'll address false teachers. Now, John doesn't do this in a straightforward manner, in a really clean manner, like let's say the Apostle Paul and how he writes in his epistles, where he would lay out something like, here are the fruits of the Spirit, and nice clean package and then here are the fruits of the flesh nice clean package instead the way John writes 
is kind of a circular idea that keeps doubling back on itself. And so what we're going to find is the true believers are kind of woven through this along with other ideas of these other people. But John wants to make a clear contrast between those two types of people. There are believers and then there are others that are in the church. And he does this using very contrasting ideas like light and darkness, like love and hate, and like life and death. And wherever in this letter he uses light, love, and life, he's speaking of those who walk in Christ, who is the light, the love, and the life. And wherever he uses ideas like darkness, hate, or or, uh, death, um, he's talking about those who don't know Christ. I wish we could spend time and go through the letter and flesh out how all of that informs how you read this letter. Again today, we just won't have time. But I take you first then to the all talk section. And that's going to be the section of 1.6 through 1.14. The, the problem here is that there are people in the church who talked in a way to make themselves appear as very holy followers of Christ. But in reality, they were all talk. And we see this laid out in the way that John says this repetitive idea. Follow with me. Chapter 1, verse 6, if we say. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say. Chapter 10, or 1, verse 10, if we say. Chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says. Chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says. In this section, John's talking about people who do a lot of talking. But their lives aren't backing up what they're saying. So, in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God, but the problem is you're not practicing truth. So you say one thing, but you're not doing it. In verse 8 and verse 10, people who say that they've conquered sin, they say that they're living a very holy life or they have no sin. But the problem is, well, the big problem on that one is that Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so to say that that's not true of you means that you don't know God's truth. 2.4, people were saying they knew God, but they weren't keeping his commandments. 2.9, people were saying that they walked in light but they still had hatred in their heart towards their brothers and sisters who were in Christ. So John contrasts that with 2.6 when he says of, of believers, but whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What John is imploring the believers in the church is that there, to understand that there are people who talk a lot, but their lives never change. They never grow. But believers are supposed to have the kind of relationship with Christ that our lives are being transformed. And he gives us a list of some of the things that then are true about believers. In chapter 1, verse 9, believers say things to God. He says it's that we confess our sins. True believers wrestle with 
The idea that God has set his law above us, and when we fail that law, we need to have an active life of confessing those things to God and asking him not just to forgive us, but through repentance to transform our hearts where we're growing. In chapter 2, verse 5 of Believers, it says, but we keep his word, and in him truly the love of God is perfected. When John uses the idea of perfection, he's not saying without fault. Perfected or perfection, as we see through this book, really means a maturing of something. It's growing until it's mature. And so what is true of believers is that we are supposed to be in a relationship with God through his word, where we are being changed and maturing in his love. We also, in chapter 2, verse 8... At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John says there's a kind of situation where light has already come and the darkness is passing away. Well, what's that true of? Is is that true of the world that we live in? As you look around at the world and the community that we live in, would you say that it's true that light has come and what we see is that darkness is already passing away? The darkness is growing weaker and weaker and it's just being dispelled by this light that's shining brightly. Is that true in unbelievers' hearts, whether you find them in the church on a Sunday morning or outside? That there's a light that has shined into their heart and you would say of them or of yourself that it is dispelling the darkness of your heart. No, it's true of one type of person. It's true of the person who has Christ in their life. And John says that this way, there's a true light that's dispelling the darkness. And if you go back to John and you read his gospel, in John chapter uh, 1 in the gospel, uh, verse 9, he identifies Jesus as the true light. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he says of Jesus that this true light was shining and the darkness couldn't overcome it. I believe that John is now saying to believers in the church, one of the things that should be true of our life is not only that we confess our sins and that we see a growing, maturing in God's word and love happening in our lives, But we're supposed to be having the kind of growing relationship with Jesus Christ that is dispelling the darkness of our lives and the way we live. Instead of just being talk, the reality of of Jesus in our heart should be evident. Next, if we follow the chapter in chapter 2, verse 9, what's true of believers? They ought to live in unity with their brothers. Or he says it this way, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Within the church, John is saying, one of the evidences of a a true believer is this desire to have unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's going to go on for the rest of this chapter in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2 through verse 14, and, and articulate the idea that within the church there are different groups of people who are not just alike he'll say it like this there's young children there's fathers there's new believers but each one of those different groups in the church bring a strength to the body of christ 
they also, because of their differences, can bring the, the opportunity to disagree, the opportunity to argue, the way po- uh, the Apostle Paul would say, to bite and devour one another. But John encourages the believers in the church to strive for unity, to recognize those small differences in one another, but to also recognize that when we agree in Christ Jesus, we have so much more in common than we have in, in not in common. That in the agreement of who we were before Christ and what Christ has done for us, we find ways to set smaller things aside. And by smaller things, listen, I understand, disagreements can seem rather large, and in light of just this world and its things, they can seem rather threatening. But that's where John is now going to go as he finishes up chapter 1 by talking about how we view the love of this world. What is the love of this world? Well, he's going to say that The love of this world in chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And truly, if those are the things that we've set our affections on, in a way that Matthew said in his gospel, Matthew 6, 21, What you value most is what you'll give your heart to, or I think he says it like this, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. If we, in church on a Sunday morning, but listen, if we still put our heart and our affections on the things of this world, which are the things that our flesh desires, the things that our eyes desire, and the pride of our heart that says this is what makes life meaningful. If those things are found outside of Christ, then when we have disagreements with one another and those things are threatened, then it's very hard to hang on to unity. But if... Christ Jesus is the most important thing to us. And who we are because of the grace that God has shown us and the finished work of Jesus Christ, then it helps us to put those things aside and find unity with one another, forgiving one another even as we've been forgiven. John says then in this next part, let me just wrap up this section by saying this. As we've talked about that, and you consider this, would you find that in some ways you're a talker? Or does your life, though imperfectly, reflect your faith? Are you growing in your faith? Maturing in your love for God and His people? Are you... Spending time with the Lord. Then he moves on to the next. I I titled this this part Defectors because these are people who he's going to talk about those who are leaving the church. It's uh, finished chapter 1 and through chapter 2. And transitioning off this idea of what you love and what's important to you. 
that he's described in, in 15 through uh, 17. You can understand then, if you remember, that this church is going through the Domitian persecution. And it meant they were losing their jobs. They were losing their place in the market. Their friends were kicking them out or ostracizing them from those communities. Maybe they were losing their homes. And they were certainly on the cusp of seeing that persecution even get worse to the losing of their lives. And in some cases, Fox's Book of Martyrs says that even those who had to watch their children and family get martyred. It's certainly understandable to say that if your affections are on anything greater than Christ Jesus, when those things that you have placed your affections in begin to get threatened, there's a real, a real possibility of thinking like, all it's going to cost me is to say that Jesus isn't my Lord and, 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 and I can have back all of these things that make my life real. And so John, remember, in the prologue is saying, but listen, that may sound tempting to you because you think that your job is real, your friends are real, these things are real, but I'm writing to you as someone who touched the real Jesus, who heard his words and really saw the effect of what, who he is and how he saves sinners. And so don't give that away for things that, in this world may seem real, but what he says in verse 16, that the things of this world are really uh, passing away in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. And whatever it is that would threaten your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's temporary. It's, it's, easy, it's, it's easy to stand up here and say that. It's just so hard to endure it. It's hard to walk through times where you're being tempted and tested. But we go to a church where there are those around who will love you through those times and walk with you in those times. And that's John's point. That's how believers who have been saved by grace act towards others who are struggling. Verse 18. John says, listen, Time is short. And already there are those inside of the church who are talking about uh, Jesus in a different way than God has revealed him to us. They're antichrists. Those, that could be both those who deny Christ, but also anti could be those who have other things in place of Christ as the most important. And John seems to be encouraging the people who read these letters, that because time is short, listen, choose a side. Make up your mind. Put your affections on the Lord. The way that Matthew's gospel would say, there is a type of person who comes and hears and receives the seed of the gospel into their heart, but because their heart is full of the way the gospel says, thorny grounds, they receive the word of God They can even mentally believe in it. But what else is in their heart, which the the gospel says, is the love of money and the love of the things of this world choke out their faith. And, And John's addressing this as a real thing that happens in the hearts of people. And he's encouraging us. Time is short. Choose a side. 
make a stand for what you believe in because there are those who are leaving the church. We, we would say it maybe like this, they're deconstructing in their faith. They were once here, but for whatever reason, they've decided Christ is not for them and they're, they're leaving. John says the reason they're leaving is that they never really were one of us. That doesn't mean that they weren't a valued part of your friend's circle in the church or that you didn't do things that you enjoyed with them or that they were never really one of us in that sense. It really means that they were never really one of us in the sense that, remember, he's saying true believers have true things about their lives. And one of those truths is that they understand who Jesus is and what he did. In light of persecution in their church they had to understand that Jesus never promised to save their job Jesus never promised to save a loved one Jesus never promised to make life easy that's not why we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior or better said we submitted to his call on our lives in salvation it wasn't to have an easy life in this life And God didn't promise to protect all the things of this life. What God promised is that in this life you will have trouble, but be of good cheer for I have overcome this world. See, when you are a true believer, and what the way John would say, when you're one of us, you understand what it is that you're, why you're here sitting in the seat this morning, why we're singing songs to the ancient of days. And it's not because he's providing us in this life with things that gratify the desire of the, the, the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's that he's taken our broken, fallen self that is only capable of self-living and sinning, And by no good works that we have done, by his grace, he has called us into faith to believe that Jesus Christ left heaven to come take on himself our fallen humanity so that he could suffer the pain and anguish of brokenness that we have and die our death and take our penalty so we could be reunited with God. When we get that, then that gives us the reason that we're in these seats is to say, man, when the music starts, I'm singing. Why? Because I'm saved. It doesn't mean that I'm healthy this morning. It doesn't mean that everything's going great. It doesn't mean that God answered the prayers about this life that I've been praying It means that he took a wretch like me and he washed me in the blood of Jesus Christ. He gave me his spirit and uh, stamped me and is keeping me until he calls my name and I enter eternity with him, not boasting of any good work that I've done. That is what it means to be a Christian. But there are those, John said, who left us because that's not why they came to Christ in the first place. And our world and our, gospel, our Christianity in the Western world is full of other ideas to ask you to come to Christ so that you can have a kind of life now that maybe you wouldn't have if you didn't have him in your life. And those are the people when they get that life, 
that they expect from Christ tested can walk away because it just didn't make sense. He didn't save their aunt that they were praying for. He didn't give them the romance that they asked. They didn't get into that school. They lost that job. They got sick. God failed them. And it's easier than to walk away. Okay. Of these people, John says in verse 26, don't let them deceive you. Don't let those people who who are disappointed share their ideas with what they thought that God was to them and sow the seeds of doubt in you. Don't let those that have walked away from the faith be a discouragement to you and don't let them deceive you because chapter 220, you have an anointing by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Now, do you have all knowledge? Some that I'm looking at come a lot closer than I do. Um, Some that I'm looking at don't come as close as I do, uh, but they're growing. Um, I I didn't mean to point to my kids. It's just, I was was on the right hand and I was on the left hand. Um, It doesn't mean you have all knowledge. It means you have all, you have all the knowledge that you need in order to understand who God is, who you are, what life is about, what God has done, and how to submit by faith to him. How do you have that? Well, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who is what he says then in 27, 227, but the anointing you receive from him, he abides in you. And then you have no need of anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you, about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And different than those who, because of the love of this world, walk away from Christ, he says, the ones who, who abide in Christ have this hope of his, his second return in 28. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. How much are you looking forward to Jesus Christ coming again? Oh, man. When I was a little kid, that terrified me because all I thought uh, when I thought of Christ's return is all of the things that I had done wrong. And I just knew there would be this terror of standing before a God and having to be confronted with all of my sin. But God has saved me. And in Christ, God has saved you. And now we can have a hope for Jesus' return. Because when we stand before him, it will only be another way to worship Christ who saved us in that moment. For every salvation, for every soul that is allowed in right relationship to be with God, it's a living testimony of how they got there. It's that God the Son took on flesh to make it possible for us to be back with him and and reunited with him. I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm looking forward to whatever heaven is. I'm pretty sure it's not streets of gold, a mansion with my name on it, or or golf courses. I, I, I just don't believe that. But I believe it's 
being a new creation with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And that's what John is saying in the prologue. It's like, man, I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. And listen, you have a hope of doing the same thing. When he returns, we don't shrink away in shame. The next section is chapter 3, and it's a section that I title imitators or imposters. The problem with these is that there were people in the church who were maybe confessing the right thing, but the problem is they were habitually and unrepentedly living sinful lifestyles. And their sin was, was tempting others to live that way. He starts it on chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. A son, in, or children... In John's, it just says son in, in the original writing. We break it up to say children because of, uh, culturally that's more uh, communicates to us uh, today. But a son in a Hebrew family was the one who did the will of the father. A son was the idea of someone who did the will of his father. The true son was that that walked in obedience to his father's will and purpose. Look at what he says. What kind of love the father has given to us that we could be called the sons of God. We could be identified as the ones who do the will of their father. That's how he sets this section up because the contrast to the ones who are walking in obedience imperfectly, but their heart was set on doing the will of the Father, in contrast, are the ones who are walking in sin that he's going to get to in just a moment. When we, then he goes on and says this, beloved, in verse 2, we are God's children now. We, we are attempting to walk according to the will of the Father now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You know, when we see Christ, I believe that we're going to see this. We're going to truly understand what it means to be submitted to God's will. We're going to see the one who walked in life exactly as we did in that the life that Jesus lived in the flesh, he experienced all of the same brokenness in the world that you and I experience, and yet he did it without sin, never failing to obey his father. Jesus said of himself, I only do the things I see the father do. I only say the things I hear the father say. Jesus was a living example of what it meant to be a son of God who does the father's will. And when we see him, oh, I think we'll see the full, like what that really looks like in a way that the best of us can't even come close to living out. Everyone then who practices sin, in verse 4, also practices lawlessness. I think here John is, again, making this contrast. Who are the sons of God? The ones who do the will of God. Who are those that may be in the church congregation but are not the sons of God? Those who walk in sin. What is sin? 
He gives us his definition, and it's really important that we understand his definition to make sense of this part. John's definition for sin is lawlessness, anomia. It it means having no law. But listen, experientially, don't we all know that no one lives by no law? People either live submitting themselves to the law of God or they become a law unto themselves, which is the idea that no one has no law. We either have our law or we have God's law. All right, John says sin is when we walk in our own law, making our own rules and our own moral standards. Let me really quickly read this with that in mind. He says, everyone who practices their own laws practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, did appeared in order to take away living for yourself and your own laws. And in him, there was no living for self. No one who abides in him then keeps on living for themselves. No one who keeps on living for their own rules has either seen him or known him. Little children, don't let anyone deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of living for their own, by their own laws and moral standards is of the devil, for the devil has been living for himself under his own laws since the beginning. And that's the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. So, with that in mind, it makes sense in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of living for themselves by their own moral standards and their own rules and laws. Does that make sense? If John's definition of sin is that sin is lawlessness, but experientially we know that that means you either obey God, let him define good and bad, or you define it for yourself, then it both takes us back to a tree in a garden somewhere really early in the story where they heard a little hissing temptation behind them say, this is what it would be like to be God's is to define good for yourself and define evil from yourself. So eat of that tree. It looks really good. And then you'll be as God and you'll get to make your own rules. And since then, listening to a devil who believed that, humanity has been broken doing that for ourselves. But Christ came to rescue us from being a child of the devil, living self-centered lives that are only regulated by our own moral standards and rules, and now we get to, as sons of God who follow the will of their father, submit ourselves to God's law. And time is running out. I mean, that's what John says, but it's also true of our situation here. So let me continue uh, to push forward. Those who then, those who don't have the law of God or submit themselves to the law of God are compared in 11 through 15 to Cain, who, if I only follow my own laws, I leave room in my heart for things like envy, jealousy, anger, hate, because I can justify those things. If I only follow my own rules in verse 16 through 18, 
I can justify hoarding things to myself, not sharing with other people when they, they have needs. Because after all, if I share the things of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, if I share that with you, I'm losing the very thing that I think life is all about. I'm risking the things I set my affections on to share them with you. And if I claim to be a Christian, but I don't let God's law be what I submit myself to, then I justify how I act towards my brothers and sisters. And so in verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And John is again in this circular argument telling us these are the true believers in the church. The ones who don't only talk about it, but they have, though imperfectly, a lifestyle that's being changed by submitting themselves to God. I got to go very quickly, and I apologize. We're going to leave so much of this out, but chapter 4, false teachers. Chapter 4 says that there are those in the church who don't believe the orthodox teaching of Christianity, but mix it with the culturally popular thinking of the day. And in doing so, they lead others into wrong ideas about God's word and wrong ideas about Christian living. But God, God's truth in verse 4, little children, you are from God. God's truth will overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, meaning the false teachers of of, of verse 5, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. There are people who are in the church who try to explain Christ in a way that is very easy to connect with people in the world. These people um, talk about salvation in a way that it makes Um, that's very good for the people who hear. It's very good for you and your life now, and and it'll be great. And because that's where people's hearts that are unbelievers are set, is in my life now, it's very relevant and easy for them to connect with people who use Jesus as a way to tell them that the things that they hold valuable in their life now, that God's really happy and concerned with those things too, and he wants to bless those things. And so John's saying a misunderstanding of Christ and talking about him in different ways is a way to connect with the world because the world already has that heart, has that effect, those affections, has the same goals, has the same desires. The world gets you when you talk about those kind of things in that way. Jesus just wants you to be happy. Well, the world wants to be happy. But what if Jesus is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness? Well, you should know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John says in in his gospel. That's what God is really interested in, is to set you free from living a life of slavery to your own rules, which lead to sin and death, and instead to set you free to be sons and daughters of God who obey his will, which is life and that more abundantly in new creation with Jesus Christ. The back part of section four then just talks about how we are being perfected or we're being matured by setting under God's true word. 
And it says, then, I, I, I just want to real quick, five, one through three, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children uh, of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. God's word is truth, John 10, 35 says. So love is obedience to God's word he defines here. Love is acting out what is true versus the lies that the world tells that are passing away. Love, then, is submitting yourself to God's rules and moral standards. Love is action, not just talk. Love is lived out towards God and towards each other. John's summarizing what he said here in the book. So if love is acting out according to God's word, then backing up the end of chapter 4 is that being matured in your Christianity is learning how to love one another. In closing, as John closes here, chapter 5, 4 through 5, John just says this way, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In closing, what has John said our faith is? Our faith is believing in the true Jesus Christ as revealed by God's word. Our faith is confessing our sins. Our faith is growing in the love of God. Our faith is maturing in the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Our faith is living in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters. It's submitting to God's word. It's walking in obedience, even though imperfectly. It's looking forward to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And when we fail in any one of this, we just start again with confessing our sins and understanding who Jesus is. That's what true believers act like. And if we have that kind of faith, chapter 5, verse 12 says, whoever has the Son of God has life. We already have life if we have the Son of God living inside of us. Why did John write this? Did John write this so that we can all walk away with a supercritical heart of ourselves and each other trying to dissect who's a real believer and who's not in the church? No! In 5.13, John wrote this so that when God takes his word through his spirit and speaks it into your heart, you can have confidence and encouragement. He says it like this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? There's a a previous place I had to skip where John says, blessed are you, brethren, if your heart doesn't condemn you because then you have confidence with God. It's been my experience that the people who doubt their salvation and lose their confidence with God do so because they're harboring sin in their heart that's got an an unduly large connection with something in this life that their heart just doesn't want to give up. And that sin gnaws at them and gnaws at them and gnaws at them until they begin to lose their confidence of whether they're a Christian in the first place. I'm here to tell you, Christ Jesus came that we can have life and him and that more abundantly. And he has died for our sins, our living for self, to set us free from it so that we can be the sons and daughters of God, the ones who, though imperfectly, do his will.
When we fail to do that, we confess. And then we get back up. Proverbs 24, 16, a wise man, though he fails seven times, yet he will arise again. We get back up and we try to live out our relationship, not just with talk, but the way we love God and the way we love each other. And if that's true in your heart and you know that's true, then you should have confidence this morning that, that, that the one who began that work in you will see it complete when he comes back again and will welcome you into his presence so that you don't need to shrink back in shame when you see Jesus Christ face to face, but you can explode in joy and worship. Can I ask the music team to come up and we're going to close in a song. John warns us at the very end here. In chapter uh, 519, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, look, John's saying that this world is wicked and it's, it's in control of the devil. But, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let me pray. Lord God, in a time when the world hates you, in a time where it seems persecution of your children is growing, in a time when our hearts can be easily captured and distracted by the love of the world, the desires of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, in a time when there are all kinds of false ideas in the church about how to be Christian, but still get to follow your selfish heart. In a time where your people are leaving the church and walking away from faith, Lord, we thank you that you watch over your children, that you save us and you keep us until the day you bring us into new creation to live with you forever. Lord God, while we are here, lead us into confession of our sins. Grow in us your love by your grace. Help us value our relationship with Jesus and prioritize our time with him through prayer and through the Bible. Help us work towards the unity of your body as we learn to forgive and to love our brothers and value their strengths. And Lord, help us live with the hope of your return in the front of our mind so that we can be light in this world for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask, amen.